Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the flu season is fast approaching and the potential of a child vaccine is also on the way. Do we have any concerns about the two coinciding or the supply that's needed? Talk about that. Doug Ford continues to be in the news after he refuses to apologize on immigration comments that he made on Monday. He's also being called on by the Green Party to revoke an MZO for a warehouse in Cambridge. Green Party leader Mike Schreiner will join us to talk about that. And last week, another proposal was tabled to put more MPs in the House of Commons, raising the number from 338 to 342. Does Canada really need more MPs? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As we mentioned on the program yesterday, uh, some very encouraging news about uh, the kids' vaccine for COVID-19. It seems as if the, uh, the testing is going well. And uh, sooner than later, we may be able to, to actually start inoculating uh, the, the kids that are under 12 years of age. And that's really good news uh, when it comes to trying to cool the pandemic and flatten the curve, all those phrases that we're so used to these days. Uh, pharmacies are going to play a big part in this, though. Uh, as Don Kelly reports, anybody in Ontario who is at high risk can not only get this shot, but also the flu shots, which are coming up. Health Minister Christine Elliott says the province has purchased 7.6 million flu vaccine doses at a cost of $89 million. Long-term care residents and hospital patients have been able to get flu shots since last month. Shots are now available for people most at risk for complications. That includes seniors, children older than six months and younger than five, pregnant women and people with underlying health conditions like asthma, heart disease or diabetes. Everyone else can get their shots starting next month. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press, Toronto. Pharmacies are going to play a big role in this uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, I know we had visions, I guess, those of us that are old enough to remember mass inoculations in the schools where everybody would line up in the hallway and get their, their polio shots or their booster shots or whatever. That's going back quite a few generations, I guess. Uh, but that doesn't happen anymore. It's probably not going to happen this time, which means that we're going to be relying on our friendly pharmacists to be able to do this. Uh, to talk about this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Justin Bates. Uh, Justin is the CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Uh, Justin, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Great to be talking to you again. Well, we've got double-barreled action here. Let's first of all talk about uh, the flu season, which is coming up, because it's uh, something I guess a lot of folks have kind of put on the back burner because uh, we're so concerned about COVID and the implications. Uh, but, you know, you look at the calendar, we're heading right into the flu season right now. Uh, a, a number of the uh, the medical experts have expressed some some concerns about just how severe the season might be, which I guess more than ever before, I, I guess, reminds us how important the, sh- the flu shot is. Absolutely. And we know that last year was a bit of an anomaly because people stayed at home. Uh, we were adhering to a lot of strict, uh, for the right reasons, health protocols. So that reduced the transmission and incidence of flu. But this year, when we look at the strains in the Southern Hemisphere, when we look at people going back to work in their offices and partaking in society again, which is all very good things, um, it does mean that uh, we will likely see a much more severe flu season than last year. So that does introduce the, the risk of overwhelming our hospitals with both COVID uh, hospitalizations and flu. And that's why it's really important for people to get the vaccine and protect themselves and their families. You know, it's interesting about that, because uh, you and I talked about that about a year ago, the, the, the fact that there were lockdowns and a lot of us were working from home, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the stats are in from last season, and I guess uh, the, the uptake on the flu vaccine was actually increased last year. Uh, the average was about 30% previous to that, and uh, it was up at 40%. So I guess people were being cautious then, and I guess we were concerned about the, 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 
the coronavirus, but also the flu bug. And the numbers were low. I mean, it was incredibly low, uh, the number of reported cases in this. But uh, uh, it sounds as if this is going to be a much more severe season. We don't quite know what the strains are going to be just yet. Uh, but again, we, we have to talk about the importance of getting that flu shot. Um, and I know we talk about the most vulnerable, but uh, this is going to be open to an awful lot of people. But is it done on a priority basis at the pharmacies? Traditionally, it was always a high-risk start for okay. those of the uh, most vulnerable population, seniors, children, uh, those with immunocompromised situations. And last year, however, we opened it up to everyone at the beginning, and that created a bit of chaos because we had that massive surge in demand with all the awareness and public health experts urging people to get vaccinated. There was a rush in October, and it created essentially an artificial shortage in a sense because the way that the supply chain works, the federal government procures from the manufacturers and then apportions the flu vaccine to each province based on a set formula. Um, but the manufacturers don't actually deliver all of the supply in one shipment in October. It starts in mid-September and rolls out to December. So we've got limited supply in October, and this is a good way to make sure the people who need it first get it. Uh, and we also manage that demand so that we don't have uh, the same lineups and chaos that we had last year. Yeah, I was one of those people that was told, hey, you're going to have to wait. Uh, just because, this, you know, as you say, there was such a rush on that. It was only a week or so, but I mean, uh, there was such a huge rush on that, which is actually kind of a good news story. That means people are actually understanding the importance of this. Now, when you say those who need it most, is it the same priority priority list that we were talking about uh, with the COVID vaccines, uh, people with, uh, you know, outlying underlying conditions, uh, seniors, people of that out there, they're the ones who should probably be looking at it just around now? Very similar to um, the immunocompromised uh, individuals that are qualifying for third shots, the boosters of uh, COVID, with a couple of exceptions. This includes kids uh, two to five, six months rather, of age to five years, um, and uh, seniors over 65, as well as uh, immunocompromised individuals. So some similarities there, but clearly that's a, a more vulnerable cohort of the population and important to get them immunized uh, from a priority sequence perspective. But, you know, the flu doesn't really hit until mid to late November. So opening it up to the general population in November makes sense. And it also uh, makes sure that we have that uh, length of the duration of the efficacy of the vaccine into March, April timeframe when the flu season starts to wind down. So the timing is done very much from a data perspective and making sure that uh, we manage this uh, appropriately. When we talk about vaccines, and we've had a lot of discussions about vaccines, especially in this year, uh, and you mentioned some people are qualifying and will probably want to get that third vaccine shot about for the COVID thing. Uh, what about, should there be a space, a time frame between vaccines, or can you get them at the same time or, you know, with a couple of days apart? Is there a concern about, about when you get that vaccine uh, with the flu vaccine? It's very safe and effective to have them at the same time. We call that a co-administration. So if you're going into your family physician or your pharmacist uh, and you're getting uh, the flu vaccine and you haven't completed the series uh, to be fully vaccinated with COVID or you're looking for a third shot and you qualify, then it's perfectly uh, appropriate and safe to get it at that time. Um, that has changed with the data. So FDA was one of the first to move on this uh, in the summer to allow for that co-administration. Originally, it was a 14-day window, spacing it out. And that was largely due to an abundance of caution. And like we've seen throughout the pandemic, the science is evolving as we get more real-world evidence and data. And that uh, results in updating guidelines. So across the country now, 
I think every province with the NASI recommendation is implementing it so that it can be as convenient as possible and you don't have to worry about efficacy issues or safety by getting both the COVID and the flu at the same time. I would imagine you have to make an appointment with the pharmacy, though, don't you? That's what we're encouraging. Uh, we've had that experience now with the COVID vaccine rollout. Uh, all pharmacies have their own booking systems, and it, it just helps manage, particularly when you think of the demand for not only the flu shot, but we have COVID testing in pharmacies. We have, uh, obviously, the other services that are on a day-to-day basis for medication management, counseling services. In addition to that, we're looking at the youth that's likely to come Uh, Our anticipation is towards the end of November for five and up. Uh, And then, as you said, completing uh, the series because there's still some who are waiting for their second shot or even first dose uh, and the third shot. So by having appointments, it ensures that you uh, can do this in a safe and appropriate way with all of the social distancing and IPAC protocols to keep people safe, but also so you don't have to wait around. Um, So it's the most convenient and efficient way to do this. Let's pivot and switch to that. Uh, the, the news about the children's vaccine, as we mentioned, is very encouraging right now. Uh, and there's a, an anticipation that maybe, maybe we'll be able to get this by the end of the year and, and we'll start vac- vaccinating the, these children that we were just talking about, the, the elementary school-age kids, and, and actually below that as well. Uh, but it's it, Christine Elliott, the health minister, mentioned yesterday, it's probably not going to be done in schools, although they, they, they said they might have clinics after schools. So, I, again, it's, it, we're going to be looking at pharmacies, uh, doctor's offices, and things of this nature, uh, depending on the geographic location in which you're in. The concern, I guess, I, I've got here, Justin, and it's, it goes back to what the same concern we had about a year ago when they started rolling out the vaccines for adults. Uh, they had a number of different. There was AstraZeneca, there was Pfizer, there were, you know, we had, uh, well, Moderna eventually came into the mix too here in Canada. This is only one maker. This is just Pfizer. Are you concerned about getting enough supply for this? It has been a topic of discussion with the regulatory authorities, and it's one of the reasons that the NACI and, and Health Canada are looking at the application of using the current adult uh, doses that we have with uh, more dilution so that. Uh, it's uh, the right dose for, for children. And really, it's one-third dose, right, the strength. Um, mm-hmm. But the formulation is the same. From what we understand from the manufacturers, there's no actual difference in the adult versus the child formulation. It's simply a matter of one has to be diluted more than the other uh, to be the appropriate dose um, for, for younger uh, kids. And, and I think that makes a lot of sense because we already have a supply here that we don't want to waste and, and we can use for this good purpose as opposed to waiting. So what we want to avoid is the approval happens and then we have to wait as a sometimes second-tier country to get all the supply. Now, Pfizer is saying that they're working very quickly and that they're going to have supply ready in a specific vial, be the appropriate dilution with uh, for, for kids five and up. But we've seen, as you pointed out, we had supply interruptions uh, in the early part of this rollout. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of demand here. So I think a bridge would be appropriate in terms of using what we have uh, and pharmacists can do that they do that uh, in other uh, cases so i think that would be something that would be prudent in terms of planning uh, and moving forward it's it sounds like an interesting plan it sounds like a viable solution to what could be a problem that's going to be developing here uh, how soon can you get the okay on that do you think well, I think we have to give the regulatory uh, bodies the time to go through the data uh, and update the guidance. So typically that takes uh, anywhere from two to four weeks. Um, we know that Pfizer's applied for emergency use application for their youth uh, five and up um, category. And uh, we're hopeful that this will happen in parallel. 
but uh, I think it's important to let the regulatory authorities do their work, um, knowing that this is an option and making sure that um, it's you know checking all the boxes for safety uh, and efficacy, uh, and we'll follow their guidance. Just to go back and use the example from a year ago when the, the, the vaccine rollout started then, uh, what saved our, our, our concerns here, because yeah, there was a concern about supply, of course, and some shortages, and we had to delay uh, vaccinating some groups because of that. Uh, but what seemed to help was the fact that we got more product in more companies, of course. AstraZeneca seemed to be the, the choice initially. Uh, and then, of course, Pfizer came along, and we have Moderna and others. Uh, is there an anticipation, Justin, that, that other companies, other manufacturers may also be developing children vaccines uh, that we could be seeing down the road? There is. Uh, we know that Moderna has applied uh, for 12 and up um, and uh, also is working on the 5 and up uh, age cohort. Uh, so it's going through the regulatory process and they're pouring through all of that data. I'm not sure on the timing in, in terms of when it would be approved and available for use, but certainly I would expect at some point uh, we would have at a minimum in Canada, Pfizer and Moderna, uh, which will give choice and certainly more um, uh, options when it comes to supply and, and hopefully avoiding any of the supply interruptions that we experienced early on in the rollout. With uh, the Pfizer discovery of, about, as you just mentioned, about usually about one-third dosage for kids that age, is, is that a template that the other companies can start working on now? I think it might vary depending on uh, certainly the product. I mean, Pfizer is a very different product in terms of how it's prepared. It doesn't come pre-mixed. Um, it's actually a, a mix that the pharmacist or other healthcare provider has to do. So that dilution is a part of that process. Uh, and of course, anytime you have dilution, you need to be uh, very accurate. Um, and that's something that pharmacists do when they do compounding and many other mixtures. So it's, it's germane to our day-to-day -day activities. Um, but with Moderna and AstraZeneca, the difference is they came pre-mixed pre in the syringe. So uh, slightly different product preparation uh, and application. So that'll largely depend on how they proceed. But I expect it to be that uh, the similar to what we see with the adults. I just want to remind our listeners, uh, I know we're talking about the children's vaccine and what may happen. It's not available yet. Uh, we don't have the, the final okay yet uh, from Health Canada. Uh, hopefully that's going to be happening in the next couple of weeks, and, and that will kick everything into motion. Uh, we're just about out of time, but one quick question again. I want to, if I could, uh, swing back to the to the flu shot situation here, and again, to talk to your pharmacists about that, because they're the ones who, who know each individual patient, of course, because they know the meds that you're on. And if it, the, last year, there was a, for lack of a better expression, I guess a super shot for the flu vaccine, for those who may be uh, more prone to this, may have pre-existing conditions. Is that going to be available again this year? It is, yeah. So there's over 7 million doses in total that the government has ordered, which is about 50% of the population uh, and a 10% um, increase in uh, orders from last year. So I think we'll be prepared for that increase in demand. The high-dose flu, which we refer to it as, is that super shock, if you will. Uh, and I think you should talk to your healthcare provider, be it a family physician or a pharmacist, and uh, see what, which one is most appropriate for you. And typically, the eligibility is 65 and over for high-dose flu, uh, and certainly for those that have uh, high-risk health conditions, comorbidities, immunocompromised uh, mm -hmm. scenarios. So that would be typically reserved for the high-dose flu. The regular dose, if you will, is pretty much uh, available for everybody else. And as we say, talk to your pharmacist or your family physician uh, to get all the details about how it would apply to you. Uh, Justin, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you.
Justin Bates, who is the CEO for the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Uh, it's flu season, and of course, we for those who are getting the third shot, the booster shot for COVID-2, talk to the physician, talk to the uh, pharmacist, and uh, get that sleeve rolled up. Let's uh, stay safe this winter. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The controversy surrounding uh, Premier Doug Ford continues. Uh, we mentioned this yesterday in the program, of course, about uh, some comments he made uh, about uh, immigration and uh, you know, basically, I guess, chastising people, saying if you're coming over here just to collect dole, uh, go someplace else. And words to that effect. And uh, it did not go over well with an awful lot of people. And uh, I know opposition members in the legislature were concerned about this. A number of uh, groups right around the province have expressed some concern about the Premier's words. Well, he was asked about it yesterday in question period, and here's how, here's how it went down. Let me just inform the opposition. You know, I am pro-immigration. I have been pro-immigration from day one. We are short 290,000 people. I was the only government that wrote letter after letter to the Prime Minister saying we need more people. But when these more people come here... I'm going to ask the member for Essex to come to order. I'm going to ask the member for Ottawa South to come to order. I'm going to ask the leader of the opposition to come to order. And the Premier to conclude his reply. Mr. Speaker, we have 290,000 jobs waiting for people around the world. And I don't care where they come from, they're going to come here. But guess what, Mr. Speaker? They need a place to live. The NDP and the Liberals voted against making sure that we have affordable housing moving faster. They voted against making sure we build highways and bridges to make sure people get from point A to point B. They voted against the transit system that people will be on the subway system getting from point A to point B. Thank you. And on and on it goes. Not surprisingly, of course, it turned into a partisan answer, but that's what question period seems to be about these days. Uh, so we still don't know whether there's going to be an apology. He doesn't seem to be wanting, leaning in that direction at all. Mike Schreiner, uh, leader of the Green Party uh, of Ontario, and of course the MPP for Guelph, joins us uh, to talk about this. Mike, always a pleasure. Thanks for being back on the program today. Hey, Bill. It's always a pleasure to join you. Uh, interesting to hear the Premier's uh, long list there of how, how great he is with immigration, etc. But he really didn't answer the question. Uh, it, this is not about what, what he feels about immigration or jo- the, the, the skilled job shortages. We know all that. Uh, but words matter, Mike, especially for political and public figures. I mean, when he made a comment such as he did the other day, uh, that's that's it, it begs the question, who was he talking about when he was talking about people that come in here to try to take advantage of the system? Yeah, the premier needs to know that words do matter, and the premier needs to um, apologize for his hurtful, divisive remarks. You know, every immigrant I know comes to Canada, wants a better life, and works really hard to achieve that for themselves, their family, and their community. And for the premier to suggest otherwise is just wrong, and it actually undermines his argument. He's saying, hey, we need more immigrants to fill job positions. Well, you're certainly not going to attract people when you make comments like Doug Ford made. So I, I know that the calls have been up for, for an apology of some description. Uh, you'd think that he would take the high road in a situation like this. I mean, we, you know, we, we've talked earlier about, you know, with an election imminent, and within six months, that's imminent in politics, uh, that he seems to be trying to portray himself as a kinder, gentler Doug Ford. Uh, he took a step backwards with these comments. You would think that there's going to be somebody in his inner circle that's going to say, Mr. Premier, you gotta, you got to take that back. Well, you know, the Premier tends to be pretty stubborn when it comes to doing the right thing. Uh, we've seen that so often, unfortunately, during the pandemic, where he's just dragged his feet on bringing in public health measures that would have mitigated the spread of the virus and prevented lockdowns. And we're seeing it once again and just these hurtful, divisive comments. And, you know, 
I, I hope, I really hope, Bill, that this wasn't a dog whistle. Um, I know some people have suggested that. I'm hoping that's not the case. I'm hoping it was a slip of the tongue. And um, the Premier should just apologize and make it very clear that Ontario is welcoming to all immigrants. This happens in politics, Mike. You've been in the game for quite some time, and, and we've been talking about this. And when when politicians stay to the script, and, and the script is usually something that's, that's you know, the, the, the politician themselves, of course, has some input into this, but there are other people that will go over it, and they just write, no, let's do this, these are the talking points, etc. cetera. Uh, when the premier goes off script, oftentimes he finds himself getting into trouble uh, because he's starting to make comments that probably even his staff are cringing at and say, oh, God, they, we didn't want that to come out. Uh, this seems like it was one of those moments. Well, and I think it's one of those moments where people in Ontario need to ask themselves, is this really the person we want to be leading this province? Is this really the person, you know, we want in the premier's office? Somebody who would make such hurtful, divisive comments. Somebody who would suggest that immigrants don't work hard with, like, no evidence. As a matter of fact, all the evidence is to the contrary, that immigrants work extremely hard. I can't tell you how many small business owners in my riding in Guelph and, and communities all across Ontario are owned by new Canadians who work incredibly long and hard hours and who have struggled like so many other small businesses uh, through this pandemic and are barely hanging on right now. And for the Premier to suggest that they don't work hard is just wrong. Well, it, it reminded me of, of the, the dark days in the early 1990s of Mike Harris and the Common Sense Revolution. Uh, where when uh, when he became premier, he simply said, look, at uh, these people on, on social assistance, they're part of the problem. And he cut social service benefits, incredible, which created the food bank industry, as a matter of fact. Thank you yeah, for that. Yeah. That's part of Mike Harris's legacy. Uh, but but there was no credibility to this, and there was absolutely no substantiation of, of the claim that he made. Uh, and and I'm, you know, if, if this is the way it's going to be, and if, these, if the premier is going to stand by his words, and because he's not apologizing, I'm assuming he does want to stand by his words, Tell me who he's talking about. Does he have examples of people that come over here just to get on the system? Because I, I don't know of them. I don't know of anybody that does that. I, I, I agree with you. The, the, the people we know that have come to this country are so grateful to be here. They work hard, sacrifice the, their, their families and everything else to make businesses work, and they many of them become very successful and actually create jobs for others. Absolutely. I can't tell you how many immigrants I know who have started uh, very successful businesses creating jobs for other Canadians. And so, you know what, I think the easy thing for the Premier to do would be just to apologize uh, and really emphasize that Ontario is open and welcoming to all immigrants. We're an inclusive, multicultural, diverse society. I think it's one of Ontario's strengths. It's one of the things I love about uh, living in this province. And so for the Premier to suggest that immigrants don't work hard, it's wrong. It actually undermines the message he was trying to deliver is that we want more immigrants uh, coming to Ontario. Uh, one of the other comments you made was that uh, that he is uh, the, the he is the premier for for the working man. Uh, you know he wants to <laughs> on the side with the workers. Uh, you you've been in the legislature. You've seen the policies that this government has passed. Does one jive with the other? Not at all. I mean, you know, let's talk to nurses who have been the, on the front lines of the pandemic, working hard and legally their employers cannot offer them more than a 1% pay increase because of legislation brought in by Doug Ford. What a slap in the face to hard frontline workers who have been caring for our loved ones, 
protecting us during this pandemic. And the premier brings in legislation capping their wages, which is essentially a wage cut when you look at, you know, the increase in inflation. I look at minimum wage workers struggling to put food on the table for their families. Premier got rid of uh, increases the minimum wage. Uh, he got rid of paid sick days. Uh, you know, nobody should go to work when, when they're sick. They should be able to stay home for a few days and get better, take care of their family. And when it comes to issues like housing affordability, you know, the premier wants to ram through highways that are going to pave over farmland, hurting um, jobs in the farm and food economy to benefit land speculators with deep pockets who are big donors to the conservative party not actually delivering on housing affordability for working people in this province. That's what the Green Party is all about. Let's build more um, affordable housing. Let's do it within our built environment so it's fiscally responsible. And let's do it in a way that protects our, our farmland and our green spaces. Uh, I just I, I know this is in Hamilton area would know about this, but I just want to remind you, Mike, because I know at Queen's Park you guys always uh, get a daily briefing of some of the, the media stuff around. I want to direct you to the editorial cartoon in the Hamilton Spectator today by uh, the brilliant uh, Graham Mackay about uh, Doug Ford, the, the working man's premier. Uh, you'll get a chuckle out of it anyway. If you get a couple of minutes, check that out. The other element I wanted to talk about here today, because I know this is front and center for you over the last little while, and we've talked uh, a number of different occasions right now about some of these ministerial orders that come down from uh, the uh, uh, government here, from the Ford government. And there's one in your particular neck of the woods uh, that uh, that is, well, it's, it's causing an, an awful lot of concern. Maybe you could explain to our listeners what's going on. Yeah, so the government, uh, Premier Ford and Minister Clark, have issued a, what's known as a ministerial zoning order, which overturns all local and provincial planning laws to fast-track a development. Um, this is for a major warehouse in Cambridge area that many people are um, suspecting are that it, it's probably an Amazon warehouse, given the configuration, but we don't know that for sure. And the government, once again, has failed to consult with First Nations this land is on the unceded Haldeman Track, uh, obviously treaty lands of Six Nations. The Six Nations Council has come out and said, hey, nobody met with us, nobody consulted with us, nobody received our consent for this particular project. And so, you know, I had to speak out. I, I think it's wrong for the government to overturn local and provincial planning laws and fail to um, engage in their constitutional duty to consult with First Nations. We saw this um, earlier um, uh, with the proposed Amazon warehouse in Pickering on the Duffins Creek wetlands, mm -hmm. uh, no consultations with Mississaugas of the Scugog Island First Nation, the treaty holders there. Large public opposition to this because it would destroy wetlands that protect us from flooding and uh, also help um, clean our drinking water. So once again, here's the premier ramming something through to benefit a big multinational corporation in failing to do his duty, which is to consult with First Nations. Well, and I'm glad you brought the uh, the, the comparator up here about what happened in Duffins Creek. We talked about that extensively on the program. Uh, and, and even, the, the, I know the council up there was opposed to this. A number of the residents were opposed to this. I think the mayor initially was in favor of it and then changed uh, his mind because of the public outcry. And and they backed away from that project, but, but not because of the, the MZO. Not the, you know, the province didn't back away from the ministerial zoning order. They, they said, no, this is the way it's going to be. Uh, the town council and eventually, uh, the, who we assume was Amazon, said, forget about it, we'll find someplace else. I don't know if this is the same project that they're just going to try to stick down here right now, but the, it, this, is, this is repeating the same sin that they repeated in Pickering, isn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've also met with a number of local residents uh, who live in the area who are opposed to this particular development. And what they've made clear to me is they are not opposed to development. Um, this area was zoned for uh, commercial and industrial development at a, at a smaller scale, and they're fine with that. They're just like, you know, why weren't we consulted? And now we learn uh, from Six Nations that they were not consulted on this particular uh, ministerial zoning order. And is this the really the appropriate place for this type of development? I mean, I think the community should have input, and definitely the government should be fulfilling its constitutional duty to consult with First Nations. Well, they're also going down a very dangerous road because we've seen in other parts of the province where developments have gone forward without consultation uh, with Indigenous groups, and uh, it, it can lead to conflict. And I'm not suggesting it's going to happen here. I hope it doesn't happen here. Uh, but that it's leaving the door open to something like that. Well, absolutely. And, I mean, if you look at the history of, you know, uh, settler or Indigenous, non-Indigenous relationships, and especially let's specifically look at the Haldeman Track, I mean, you know, uh, that treaty was signed uh, because Six Nations, um, you know, fought on the side of the crown, and that was their reward for participating and supporting uh, at that time. And it's just been chipped away, chipped away, chipped away. Um, there's documentation now that money that was set aside uh, in compensation for, for land being taken away actually never made its way to Six Nations. Uh, there's legal uh, pending uh, legal uh, uh, cases uh, currently pending on that land related to the Haldeman Track Treaty. And, you know, I think in this era of truth and reconciliation, we have an obligation, uh, governments have an obligation to honor treaties and to ensure at the very least that we um, comply with our constitutional duty to consult First Nations. I don't know when they're going to le learn that lesson, but it just it seems to be something that's ongoing. And the, the root cause of this, and you and I talked about this a couple of months ago, uh, are these ministerial zoning orders, which, by the way, is not new. I mean, it's something that, as, as you mentioned to us before, Mike, it's been on the books for quite some time. I think the previous liberal government in the, what, 16 or so years that they were in power, I think they used it two or three times. Uh, this minister, Mr. Clark, Minister Clark here, is handing these things out like candy on Halloween uh, to just about anybody that wants one. And basically what it means is local council, we don't care what you want. Community, we don't care what you want. We're going to ram this project through. Yeah, what I find really disturbing about the way in which the government's using it, it's, it's not the tool itself. It's the misuse, abuse, and overuse of ministerial zoning orders. There are rare occasions where ministerial zoning orders are an appropriate tool to use. A previous government, I'll give you two examples. Uh, one, you know, sort of in your area, uh, to stop the St. Mary's Quarry in Flamborough, uh, which was a threat to drinking water and a threat to the Niagara Escarpment, and I thought it was an appropriate use of a ministerial zoning order to stop that quarry uh, and to protect the local watershed and, and you know, a pretty important uh, natural part of our heritage, the Niagara Escarpment. Uh, and again, in Elliott Lake, when you had the mall collapse, there was no grocery store, and they fast-tracked the building of a grocery store so people in the community could access their groceries. In both cases, uh, the ministerial zoning order was issued in compliance with local and provincial planning rules. They just fast-tracked it. 
part of what the problem with the current government is doing is is they're overturning uh, local and provincial planning rules rather than just fast-tracking. And they're using it, like you said, handing it out like candy, rather than using it as a rare tool that um, is used in those rare instances where uh, you know an environmental protection needs to be brought in or a community benefit needs to be brought in that um, fulfills an urgent community need. What's the status of the project that you were just talking about here? The, what seems to be the warehouse, two million square foot warehouse uh, on, on the Holloman track lands. It's, it, in Cambridge, of course, I'm sure folks know the area quite well in their mind's eye. They're probably picturing it right now. Uh, is, is, does the, the, the MZO make this a done deal or is there, do the residents there have a, a alternative ways of, of, of trying to battle this? Well, it's, it's my understanding that there is the possibility of legal action. Uh, there is a, a, a group that um, has indicated that. Uh, and it, this really rests with the Premier and the Minister. Are they going to listen to the call from Six Nations and fulfill the government's duty to consult? Uh, and I would argue, and I think the Premier should just revoke the MZO at this point and engage in proper consultations with Six Nations, uh, before moving forward, the, the the essence of this whole thing is 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 sensitivity, and I don't just mean people sensitivities, but I mean you, you just mentioned two key areas here. First of all, consultation. I mean we've had there's so many discussions about truth and reconciliation, and 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 giving proper respect, I think, to people of indigenous cultures. Uh, this seems to slap that in the face. The other is the environmental issues. And, and both projects you just referenced here, this one, uh, the one that was being proposed in Pickering, and I guess you can th throw the proposed Highway 413 into this as well, Mike, uh, are trampling over environmentally sensitive lands. They know that, and they're simply saying, so what? Uh, there's a way to make money here. And, and, you know, this we're open for business stuff. But I mean, Look, there's one thing to build a highway, but just say we're going to ram it right through an environmentally sensitive land, uh, you know, including the Holland Marsh was a proposal for another one of these things. I mean, you, you got to wonder if these guys are actually listening to what's going on around them. Well, you know, the, one of the biggest things you have to wonder is, do they recognize that we're facing a climate crisis? I mean, my gosh, you know, what a, what a year this has been. The fires we've seen on the West Coast, uh, the heat deaths we saw in British Columbia, the fact that this summer in Ontario... Uh, six First Nations had to be evacuated due to forest fires. The toxic smoke from those fires, you know, made the greater Toronto area had the worst air quality in the world for a few days. I mean, we are in a climate emergency. Uh, and if the government continues to pave over the places we love, farmland, wetlands, uh, that's going to just expose us to more risk associated with flooding uh, as extreme weather events escalate. And it's going to supercharge sprawl, which is what is leading to the largest source of climate pollution in Ontario, which is transportation emissions. If we're going to reduce transportation emissions, and we absolutely have to if we're going to address the climate crisis, and I would argue improve people's quality of life, who wants to you know, be in a car all day commuting, uh, why not build you know, livable, connected, affordable communities better utilizing our existing built space. It's more fiscally responsible. It's more economically productive, especially in supporting small businesses and ensuring we protect our farmland. And it's a key element in reducing climate pollution and addressing the climate crisis. Win-win wins across the board. Uh, but instead of taking that approach, the Ford government is taking an approach that really benefits a small handful of land speculators who want to cash in on the sprawl agenda that Ford is putting forward. 
Well, we'll follow the story and see what's going to be happening. Mike, always a pleasure. Thanks for this today. Hey, Bill, anytime. Mike Schreiner, leader of the Green Party of Ontario and MPP for Guelph. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Does Canada really need more members of Parliament? This is a thing. This is a discussion that's going on in Ottawa these days. Not for the first time. Uh, and, and there may be a legitimate reason why the discussion is taking place, but how it's happening and, and what may result uh, is something that we need to be paying attention to. Susan Delacourt, who is the national columnist of the Toronto Star, wrote about this a couple of days ago in the Star, and she joins us uh, on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Great to have you back on the program, Susan. Thanks for joining us today. Great to be back, Bill. Hi. I remember the this process, I guess it was about 10 years ago, and it was rather controversial at that stage. Uh, this, this is basically, we'll talk just to give our listeners a little input into this without getting too deep into the political weeds. As the population in this country grows, and in some cases is redistributed, every now and then, uh, Parliament must look at this and say, okay, we need to make this fair. Uh, maybe we need more members. And and as you mentioned, it was about 10 years ago was the last time that uh, they increased it uh, up to uh, 338. Uh, they added a number of seats right now. I'm surprised it's happening so soon, though. Well, it is. Uh, it, I, 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 I'm not sure whether it's the law or just tradition, but it, um, I, I should have double-checked that. But Elections Canada actually does this every 10 years, yeah. takes the census, um, looks at it and sees whether we have um, enough MPs to represent the population. And one would assume, as the population grows, that we need more MPs. But that's not always been the case. Um, and there, there, is a, a, there has been a trend, and this was a, incredibly controversial a few years ago, when we'll remember that Premier Ford decided to reduce the size of Toronto City Council. Uh, and the courts just ruled that that was okay for him to do. So, uh, you know, the question is, are we getting better democracy because we have more MPs or should we think smarter about what MPs, you know, and, and what and how they represent? And, and there's an interesting line to be, that can, can be crossed here. And, and I, I remember this happening last time. Uh, this is, as you mentioned, a, really an exercise that's done by Elections Canada. It's not really supposed to be done. Uh, by the parliamentarians themselves, Un- unlike, for instance, uh, I know you, in your piece here, you, d- you use the comparator of what goes on in the U.S. Congress, where they actually do hands-on. They decide where they're going to draw the lines for each district, etc. And, and that's well, but that's the term it's gerrymandering crazy. comes yeah. in here. It's it's not quite yeah. that, uh, but the possibility for that sort of uh, a, a process can occur here too, can't it? Very definitely. Um, you know, once these you know these proposals are loosely sent out. Uh, just for your listeners to tell you, they, they set up uh, a commission for each province and or territory, and then they start drawing the map. And that can get incredibly complicated. Um, during the last one, I remember uh, it was incredibly controversial that they had split up Toronto into wacky ways in which, you know, um, there was a, a new riding of Mount Pleasant uh, proposed. All of that got thrown out because MPs and people in communities start redrawing the boundaries themselves and, and saying what works and what doesn't. And I, I've been telling people, I, w- I went and sat in on those hearings 10 years ago. They are fascinating. It sounds like it would be a really nerdy exercise, but people get really agitated about what defines their neighborhood and what defines their community and what is the boundary. Uh, if you think everybody thinks about their own neighborhood, uh, I have one here where, you know, the, the lines are kind of arbitrary. One side of the street is one riding and one is another, and that matters. 
I, well, on a municipal level, I mean, I'm in the same situation here in the Hamilton area. Uh, I, I live in Ancaster, uh, but about 50 yards away from us is a big series of power lines that go across the road. That's the dividing line between Hamilton and Ancaster. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and if you're on the other side of the power lines, uh, you know, you may as well be in, in you know, an Eastern European country or something. People get very, very defensive about these sorts of things. And because and, I've, I've seen these, these debates, too, and you're right, I mean, but there's two elements going on here. One is people in community that say we don't want our community broken up, and we can sort of understand that. But notwithstanding that, the members of parliament themselves weigh in on this. Uh, they, they become do. part of those yep. community meetings. I can remember, uh, and 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 for self-serving reasons. I mean, you don't want to see the lines redrawn to say, "Hey, wait a second, I won." You know, the popular vote in that particular part of the city. I want that still in my riding, and and if they say no, it's going to go into another riding. You're going to you're going to get your back up and say, wait a second, that could cost me my seat. And this is all in, an incredibly more intense process now because all the parties have tons and tons of data. Uh, the you know the we the conservatives brought it in in the early 2000s, the era of big data campaigning. But uh, those databases that the parties have have incredibly sophisticated knowledge about who lives where. And you're right. They know exactly where their voters are and they don't want to be cut off from people. It, it, the urban-rural split, for example, is a really interesting one, too, because uh, we are now sort of developing into a country where rural areas are mainly conservative and urban ones are mainly liberal or New Democrat. So... Uh, if you have a riding that is uh, all urban, all rural, you know where that goes, right? So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's uh, it, it, it is a, a it's a discussion that we shouldn't uh, you know put down to a boring sort of map drawing exercise. It's actually fascinating in how Canada is defining itself in terms of communities. And and the size of, of our government. And I know that they always yeah. get, you draw comparisons. And whether it's something like 650, I think, MPs in, in the UK, and it's about the size of Prince Edward Island, I think. Uh, so do, do we really need more MPs here in Canada? It's a much bigger country. Uh, but you get down to workload and, and the job of an MP and what they should be doing. Uh, but it also goes back, and I, you know, I, I know the MPs feel uncomfortable about this, but look, at there's nobody in Ottawa right now. You've been doing this for years now, Susan. There's nobody up there that doesn't want to get reelected. Uh, and and every time we just had an election, and you know darn well that a number of them are already starting to say, okay, this could be a minority parliament. I got to gear up for the next election. And where those votes came from and to get you elected in the first place is a key part of that. So, of course, they're going to try to stick their nose into this process. Yeah, and I'm really intrigued, too, to see what the pandemic has done for for this whole exercise, because the MPs mainly have been back in your riding. This that pandemic parliament. I'm I'm hoping it's going to be studied, you know, by smarter minds than mine, about what it did to the job of an MP and how the job of a member of parliament changed by being so much back in their constituencies um, for the last two years. You know, the reelected ones, or not so much the newly elected ones. We'll see. But but since March 2020. Basically, the job of a member of parliament has not been about going to meetings in Ottawa or caucus meetings or sitting on, on various things or traveling. It's been about serving the local area. And all of us know through the pandemic, we've got to know our neighborhoods better. We know the businesses that have suffered and those who have not. Uh, one would think the same is true about members of parliament, too, that 
that they know the job of being on the ground in their ridings way better than they did uh, a year and a half ago or two years ago. Uh, which would probably just, uh, I guess, you know, help or make them dig their heels in about saying, well, I got to hang on to this now because, you know, the community knows me and I know them. Uh, but the exercise will go on in, in some way, shape or form. Uh, the proposal that's out there, and you wrote about this in the piece, I find is intriguing because uh, there's a political consequence to this, too. And and, and as you Huge. talked about 10 years ago, during the, 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 there was a major addition of seats then. Uh, then Liberal backbencher Justin Trudeau uh, asked the question that you actually use here, does Canada really need more MPs? And yeah. you know, if you were asked that on Main Street anywhere in in Canada or Ontario right now, Susan, the answer would be no. Uh, the, the first thing that they say is, "No, we we need probably fewer MPs." Uh, right. But that's just because of the people have a, you know the opinion they have about elected officials. Uh, but where these seats might be actually allocated is is rather interesting as a political calculation, isn't it? Yeah. So you're right. Uh, Ten years ago, the Liberals were opposed to more MPs. They they actually redrafted a proposal. To, uh, to give everybody the same proportion, but with the same number of MPs. And Justin Trudeau, then just a backbencher, spoke in favor of it. So, yeah, we, we're not getting an extra 30 in this proposal. It's only an extra five. So three are in Alberta, which is fascinating, uh, mm. because Alberta has become a very interesting spot uh, in terms of elections, uh, sort of hard fought in the last campaign. Liberals actually regained a couple of seats there. Uh, one is in British Columbia, no surprise. Um, one is in Ontario. And, oh, sorry, it's an extra four MPs, pardon me. And Quebec, again, um, a huge electoral uh, area of electoral interest loses one. Now, just imagine what the Bloc Québécois and the Quebec government is going to say about the idea of, of fewer Quebec MPs in the House of Commons. I, I just see that being a non-starter. So... Uh, it may be that uh, that all the, the extra MPs will exist, but Quebec won't lose one either. That would be my bet. And, and as you say in the piece, there's no way that the Prime Minister can simply say we can't do this uh, because of the political consequences. It looks as if uh, they may be starting to get a foothold back in Alberta again, as you mentioned, uh, you know, a couple of MPs elected. Uh, and actually, the two mayoral races in, in the two major cities in Alberta, I think, speak well for the Liberals, at least not on the federal yep. level, but uh, because of what happened there. So they don't want to tick off anybody in Alberta. That's what it comes down to. And they no, certainly don't want to tick off anybody in, in, in Quebec. I mean, that's still going to be a battleground. Uh, and nobody wants to campaign there, especially uh, Justin Trudeau, who's from Quebec, to say, hey, we're taking one of your MPs away. No, that's I, I am old enough. God help me to remember the constitutional debates and and the idea of any province losing any clout, even one person in the Commons or the Senate would uh, would send people crazy. So I don't know that this is on Quebec's radar yet, but uh, as we see these commissions take place, I would imagine you're going to see uh, the Bloc Quebecois in the House saying that this will be uh, a historic humiliation for Quebec if it loses a seat. So. Already, we know that that some of this um, some of this initial proposal is a non-starter. Well, there's a Quebec election coming up pretty soon, isn't there? I guess so. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I, uh, it's, I think um, it's in the next couple. It's, it's it's before. I know ours is in June. The Ontario elections in June, but I think it's before that. Uh, and you got to know Premier Legault with uh, his uh, uh, antagonistic approach to, to Justin Trudeau these days. I mean, he's he's going to use this certainly. And and you're absolutely right. The Bloc is going to jump all over this right now, saying, "See, Canada doesn't like Quebec." And that's, that's been their mantra yep. for the longest time. And this is just adding fodder to that. Yep. Yeah. That's a, 
I, I, I predict this is a, the idea of Quebec losing a seat is just not going to last the year. What it also does, uh, when they finish, fin- finish this process, if they are going to start redrawing lines and adding seats, uh, it, it causes some, uh, some further ranks for some of the MPs because they may actually decide, hey, maybe I have to run in a different riding uh, because they, that, I, I've just and, lost a good deal of my support. And that has happened. Um, I, I think it was 20 years ago, if I recall, that you'd see suddenly um, Liberal MPs, two MPs fighting over the same territory. You know, I, I, know, the, I know the race you're thinking about. It was right here in Sheila Hamilton, Co- Tony Valeri Sheila and Sheila Cops. And Tony Valeri, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a very intense process. And uh, out in, uh, I remember uh, the same thing happened out in uh, Nova Scotia as well, where you'd see two MP, incumbent MPs fighting over the same territory because their riding had been redrawn. So, yeah, it can get messy as we saw with the cops of a Larry one. Not a, a, that was a situation for the listeners who may not recall. The, Hamilton East and Stony Creek were two separate ridings, and they decided to, to merge them into Hamilton East Stony Creek as one riding. Uh, and it, 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 Sheila Copps was in one riding and Tony Valeria was in the other. And usually, you know, especially when you're on the same team like that, I guess the discussion happens behind closed doors. Okay, I'll move over here and you stay here and, and let's just live happily ever after. There were there were some underlying things going on there that I think caused that to be a, a head-to-head battle like that. And you're right, it got pretty ugly. It was, uh, yeah, it, uh, uh, it was an effort by Paul Martin's team to push out the woman who had run against him uh, mm-hmm. in the leadership. And there was a lot of bad blood there. And I, I was at that riding association, uh, or that vote. I actually flew down to Hamilton to watch that take place. And Tony Valeri won. And that was basically the end of Sheila Kopp's, uh political career so yeah these can be high stakes uh, and, and sometimes it's not so bad i mean you know we had the other end of town too uh, where uh ancaster and flamborough were one riding and david sweet uh, who was elected when stephen harper was elected uh held that but they split it up and he had to make that decision you just talked about uh, ancaster yeah. which is heavily urban and and flamborough which is rural he opted to decide i'm going to run in the new riding in flamborough and, and did get re-elected there and which ancaster one of the power lines is, in yeah, yeah, you just went to the other side of the power lines, and, and Lancaster turned liberal. Uh, you know, with Philomena Tassi winning uh, because of the redrawing of the boundaries, it gave the liberals extra support in that particular riding too. So there are consequences to this. Yeah, how heavily? I know we're just about out of time. How heavily are these MPs going to get involved in this? And it, does it come back to the government for a vote, or is it just okay? This is the way it's going to be, guys. Like it or lump it. No, there will be legislation. Uh, it will come in the form of legislation, and you can bet that all 338 members of parliament are going to be at those hearings in some form or another. If they don't, they're not really doing their jobs, right? They're supposed to know their, their writings. But uh, yes, when I sat in on the hearings uh, 10 years ago, all, all the MPs were intensely interested well, they can get in on the debate if they're vaccinated. I guess that's another story that uh, we'll have to talk about another yeah. time. Susan, always a pleasure. Uh, great piece, by the way. Does Canada really need more MPs? This is an ongoing battle that's happening up in our nation's capital right now, and we'll certainly keep an eye on it. Uh, take care, Susan. I hope we can talk Thanks. again soon. Yes, always pleasure, Bill. Bye. Take care. Susan, uh, of course, is the national columnist with the Toronto Star. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.